Hi there, I'm Paulina Cameron, CEO of the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, a national charity that educates, mentors, energizes, and connects women entrepreneurs. Welcome to season three of The Go-To for Entrepreneurs in the Know. The Go-To is brought to you by the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs in collaboration with the Scotiabank Women Initiative and generously supported by the Women's Enterprise Organizations of Canada. I'd like to acknowledge that production of this podcast is taking place on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Coast Salish peoples, specifically the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. On our last season, we dove into resilience, and this season is all about the builders, the women entrepreneurs who are building businesses with big visions, building teams with great impact, building stronger communities, and growing our economy. They are the women behind the products and services that we admire. Their stories will take us on a journey and give us a peek into what's happening behind the scenes with their businesses at this critical stage of their growth, and will bring forward great nuggets of applicable wisdom and a solid dose of inspiration. Let's dive in. Okay, and just before we dive in, listen up. At the end of the season, we will be giving away a pair of Apple AirPods Pro, courtesy of our friends over at TELUS, so that you can have a delightful podcast experience on the go. All you have to do is enter to share your feedback. What did you love? What would you love to see going forward? Who would you like to hear from? Submit your thoughts at fwe.ca slash feedback, and we will draw one lucky winner at the end of the season. Welcome to episode one of season three of The Go-To for Entrepreneurs in the Know. I am really excited for this conversation with Connie and Laura of Three Ships. Three Ships set sail in 2017 with a chemical engineer named Laura and a business grad named Connie. Both entrepreneurs at heart, they were frustrated with how high-quality natural skincare costs so much. And then they decided to do something about it. I think that's how the entrepreneurship path really begins. Scraping together $4,000, they started out by making their own handmade formulations in Connie's apartment kitchen. Now, Three Ships is a natural and vegan skincare company with 16 products, all costing less than $55 each, which really, truly is incredible. They are on a mission to make skincare 100% natural and 100% affordable. I will confess I, and admit I am an avid user of their products and my skin. I just, anyone who sees me says my skin glows. It is amazing and I love that I can do it in such an affordable way. They were recently featured on Dragon's Den, and Three Ships is now also being carried in over 400 stores in North America and is launching in Target and Whole Foods this January. Calling in from Toronto, let's welcome Connie and Laura. Hello, hello, you two. Hi, thank you so much for having us today. Okay, so I gave a little bit of a snippet, but I really want to hear in your own words, how did it start and how is it going? Yeah, so it really started when Connie and I were recent grads. We were both 23 at the time, fresh out of school. Like you mentioned, I graduated with my degree in chemical engineering. Connie's a business grad. And um, just started from our own frustrations. As consumers, Connie and I were starting to get more and more into natural beauty, learning more about the different ingredients and how things are sourced, but could not afford pretty much any of the natural products that were on the market. We're talking $80 for a cleanser, $400 for your whole routine, as recent students, like we could not justify that. So um, with just $4,000, so we each put in two grand, we got started with um, just four SKUs and we were hand making all the products in Connie's kitchen and then shipping them out of my apartment living room at the time. So it was a very bootstrapped uh, business. And we did this uh, outside of our nine to fives for the first year and a half of the company. And how did you meet each other? We were actually introduced through a mutual friend uh, so Laura was the one who had the initial idea for this like coconut oil based makeup remover wipe. And she was looking for someone to chat with about the initial MVP that she had, which was, you know, something that she had made from oils from Whole Foods and like a plastic jar. And when she was talking with one of her friends, he was like, wait, my friend Connie, who I went to school with um, in elementary school, she was like 
crazy about natural skincare even back then. She's like the go-to natural beauty guru in our friend group. You should totally just like run this idea by her and get her thoughts. So we met up for what was meant to be like this 30 minute dinner um, where she would just show me the product and I tell her what I thought about it and where it could improve. Um, and then just turn into this like three hour mega brainstorm meeting of the minds where we were like, oh my gosh, and then this thing about the beauty industry and like we really don't like this and like we could totally make a change here. And in that three hour, you know, brainstorm where we got kicked out of the restaurant we met at because they were like, you guys are here for too long. You guys got to get out. So we moved to Starbucks. And we realized that we had complete opposite personality types, but really aligned life values, Mm. which I think is so important. And it instantly created a lot of trust and also the excitement between the two of us. And, um, you know, at the end of that conversation, Laura could tell I was like really interested in potentially partnering with her. She was dropping like little hints. She kept being like, oh, I've always wanted to start a business, but I just don't have any ideas. Your so idea the is answer, great, though. So yeah. the answer to the question of who pursued who. <laughs> Connie was the pursuer. Yeah, no, I am the pursuer in all of my relationships. But I don't play games. I go straight for what I want. And from my perspective, I knew that I wanted a co-founder. Um, didn't know that Connie was going to be that person before I met her. Um, but I had run two businesses while I was in school. So one of them was an exterior house painting business. I had a crew of eight. And then the other one was a retail bookstore on campus, had a uh, team of nine employees. And both of those experiences were amazing. Definitely made me um, so invested into entrepreneurship. And I knew that I would want to start up my own business uh, after I graduated. But they're also very lonely. Like, mm-hmm. I was a solo entrepreneur. It was very difficult. Like, you can rely on friends and family and significant others to ha- help you and support you. But they don't truly understand the stresses that you're going through and what's going on, both the, like, highs and the lows. They're not so in the was, trenches. In the they're not way. in the trenches, exactly. And they don't have all the context. And it's also not healthy for them to have all the context because, like, you don't want... <laughs> want to necessarily bring everything from work into your personal life. Um, so I knew that the next business I started, I'd want to have a co-founder. And then like Connie mentioned, just kind of instantly clicked for us. So we got very lucky. Okay. And so that's how it started. And let's talk about how it's going. You know, you're launching right now when this is airing at Target mm-hmm. and Whole Foods. Give us kind of the highlight reel and then we'll go backwards and rewind all the lessons yeah. in the low light reels. Yeah, sounds good. So since our initial launch in March of 2017, um, that first year was like a partial year and we were side hustling it. We did 40,000 in sales that year. Next year was our first full fiscal year in 2018, and we did a little over $100,000 that year. Last year, we did six fifty, dollars and this year, we're going to finish off at $1.5 million. So it's been really exciting to see the growth of the brand. Um, and then I'll let Connie go over what we have going on in 2021. Yeah, there's been a lot of really exciting updates. So like you mentioned, launching into over 500 Target stores in January, also on Target.com. Um, We're launching at Whole Foods in the California region to start in February. We also just recently signed on with Indigo, Urban Outfitters, Halt Renfrew in Canada. Um, And I'm missing one more, but there's so many amazing new retail partners that we're bringing on. And I think it's great um, that we're going to have so much more visibility across different channels that our consumers are already shopping at. Uh, So really exciting stuff. But this wasn't something that happened overnight, like you kind of, you know, um, mentioned earlier. It just in the beginning days, it was literally just hand making products in our kitchen. And we never could have dreamt up that we would, you know, one day land a brand like a retailer like Urban Outfitters. Okay, so it feels like the natural next question here is to ask, how did you land them? What was the first one? What was the most significant story? And also, you've gone from beginning as D to C to now going through retailers as well. Why did you make that decision? And how is it? Well, obviously, it's working well for you. But yeah, walk us through so, that. And I can speak to this as, um, you know, I manage more of the marketing and sales side. And Laura managed more of the back end, like product development, cash flow, financial supply chain. Um, so when it comes to the marketing and sales, something that we did um, very intentionally when we started our natural skincare brand is that we really want to focus on partnering with wholesale partners. And I think this is something that a lot of people questioned us on initially. Um, they said, like, you know, higher margins, if you just sell directly online, um, why don't you just focus on being a DTC company? But for us, we believed that people are getting inundated every day with different um, new brands that they're seeing, whether it be within the skincare space or makeup or hair care, et cetera. And we believed that if someone got a chance to smell, touch and feel our products, preferably at a retail partner that they're already shopping at, it would make sense for them to try it and then potentially repurchase from our site. 
We actually proved this out with user testing. So in the initial days, what it looked like to get a wholesale partner was me walking up and down the streets of Toronto, handing out our samples and a line sheet to anyone who would take the product and then following up with them via email. And then as soon as I got that first local retailer, I'd reference that retailer in all email communications to, you know, future cold emails for other retailers and like continue adding to that list. Yeah, Solid and they were like, we don't even know who these retailers that you're mentioning, but like, kudos to you. And um, it was very, very like, you know, blood, sweat and tears. Another way that we got some of our larger retailers is by focusing on beauty trade shows. So for this, um, for example, we met Kohl's in the US um, at Indie Beauty Expo. We also met Whole Foods, um, the buyer um, in the California region at trade shows. So for any of you who are listening, um, who have you know a product that would make sense to be put in a wholesale partner, I highly recommend looking at the most reputable uh, trade shows within your area. Um, and this is something that I wouldn't recommend skipping out on. Laura and I tried going down the route of looking at trade shows that were smaller and more cost effective. But what we realized was that there's a reason that trade shows cost a certain amount and the reputable ones do cost more because they know that the quality of the buyers and the press and the editors they're bringing in is of that tier. Laura, so you were just talking about investments and growing. So let's shift into that. I know you recently closed a very successful fundraising round. Full disclosure, I get to be an, an investor with you and your team. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were part of Dragon's Den as well. And I know people are going to want to know what the experience was like. So take us through that. Like when you were going through your first round, what were your goals? What did you want to see happen? And then what actually happened? And then what did you learn with this next round? Oh my God, so many learnings <laughs> since our first rounds. Like around a year and a half ago, so in March of 2019, we were introduced to like our first like small couple of investors that we met at a trade show that we went to down in the States. And they kind of gave us the impression that they're like, oh, you haven't started fundraising yet and you're already two years old. If you leave it much longer, they like no one's going like to want to dance dinosaurs. with you at the, at the yeah. like ball. Yeah, they're like, you're going to wait too long and you won't be interesting anymore. So like, now's your chance and you should do it. But then, of course, none of them were willing to write checks. But (laughs) they like introduced us to the first set of people. And when you're fundraising, like every person you talk to will introduce you to another three. So it's like pretty easy to like build out a list of around 100 to 150 people on it. It's just a lot of conversations and it's a huge time sink. So I think between March when we first met those investors and when we actually collected the checks in like September, October, we must have had like probably 100 calls at least each between Connie Mm -hmm. and I. It's spoken with so many different people, pretty much getting like no's all over the place. And it's because we were too early. Like realistically, we should not have been fundraising. We shouldn't have taken that advice from them that we needed to fundraise now or else we'd be too old. Um, We ended up closing like a small pre-seed of $135,000. Um, and that was what we used to help with the rebrand and to launch into all of these amazing retail accounts and land them by going to trade shows. And then more recently, so around 12 months after our first round, we just closed another seed round as well. And so many learnings from that that first fundraise. Um, Connie can get into some of them, I think, but yeah, it was much easier this time. I think in terms of some of the tangible learnings that we pulled from the pre-seed round fundraise to this past seed round is that we learned that you absolutely need to set an end date um, for your fundraise. When we were doing our pre-seed, we're just like, yeah, like we're raising. And they're like, okay, cool. Well, I mean, I can schedule a call with you in two weeks. And we're like, great. And then we didn't block off a period of time in our own calendars to have investor calls. So for that reason, there were only like certain periods that we had, we were able to book calls with investors. And because of that, it took so much longer. Mm-hmm. Whereas with our seed round this year, we were like, okay, the period is going to be October 16 to November 1st. We're only doing investor calls during that time. Actually, Laura slept over at my place every night during that period. So we could do calls from 8am yeah. to like at least 8pm mm-hmm. every day. It was, it was brutal. I'm um, just like being completely honest, but yeah. it was, so, yeah. We have this photo of us like collapsed on Connie's dining yeah, room table. My fiance took a picture so. and sent it to us later and we just like died laughing. But that's just the reality of what goes on behind <laughs> the scenes. And I think doing it that way was so much better than the first time because we were able to go back to back on calls. And oftentimes you need a follow up call with an investor. So it makes sense to have your calendar open. Um, other thing that we also learned was to set a minimum check size. We didn't know that for the first round. So when we're trying to raise, people are like, well, how much do you need? And we're like, 
you know, $100,000. And they're like, well, I mean, you're a pretty small company now. Like, what's your minimum check size? And we're like, yeah, we just get back to you on that. So with this round, we realized. <laughs> you yeah, were like, we'll yeah. take anything that you will give us. We were like, what's the minimum check? <laughs> like, what do they mean? We, did. yeah. we didn't know what a minimum check size was or a closed date. So then for this time, no we idea. set um, an actual minimum check. And I think also this time we invested in designing a really beautiful deck um, where we actually paid um, a designer to just take our elements of our brand and our data and like how much we've improved year over year. And he created a story for us um, that he presented in the deck that just like it pretty much wove our story much better into the deck than we could have done ourselves. And I think that actually led to convincing a lot of investors um, to sign on because it just was so beautiful. Okay, so well-designed deck that has a good narrative, mm-hmm. uh, close-by date with time blocked off in your calendars, okay. a minimum check size, what else? And then also foster those relationships over time. So something that we did during the pre-seed round was all of those like 150 contacts that we'd spoken to, many of whom like we should not have been speaking to, like we were way too early for them, but we still fostered those relationships over the next year. So we had an investor newsletter that we would send out every other month, and that would update them on some of the major like wins, um, some of our key metrics that we were seeing within the growth of the business, and then some of our challenges that we're asking for help with. And I think that made it a lot easier during the second go around to establish and get time in people's calendars, because we could also see who is really interested in the brand by who was opening those emails and clicking on links and engaging with them. Um, and so with Dragon's Den, going back to your question, it was a really fun experience. I would highly recommend uh, your listeners to audition for the show. The process um, was pretty straightforward. Uh, so the way that it happened is we auditioned um, in February and then we found out in July uh, that we got in. So from 2000 auditions, we were one of 80 companies. Um, and then from there, uh, wow. we actually filmed the episode in September. So that whole period of time, we were practicing our pitch. We practiced like 200 times. Um, and by the end of that practice period, we felt really confident going into the den. Uh, but I still remember like the, the night before, we were so nervous, just like practicing at ourselves, like at the wall, at the mirror, like at each other. Uh, we came up with a full list of Q&As uh, for potential questions they might ask. Um, so for your listeners, if there's anyone interested uh, in, you know, auditioning or pitching for Dragon's Den, we wrote a blog post actually about our whole experience, which you can find on our website, throughchipsbeauty.com. Um, or again, you can always reach out to us if you have questions. I love that. Okay, so for those who haven't seen your episode yet, and I'm sure they now will, because I did not realize that it was from over 2,000 submissions that 80 got chosen. So truly, like, what mm-hmm. what do you think contributed to you being able to stand out that way? And two, what was the results? Tell us what happened in the den. So I guess I can speak to the what made us stand out. Um, I think it was the fact that Connie and I had done so many pitches in the past. It's kind of like that year of like, or I guess seven months of rejection that we had when we were trying to raise our pre-seed and just kept getting no's. And we're talking to people like so many investors that really forced us. And you were pitching on stages too. Like I remember watching you at the semifinals mm-hmm. at um, yeah. in Toronto and was so impressed with the story and the narrative you were bringing for it. I mean, to me, it feels like a no brainer and the power mm-hmm. of that. But clearly there's so much work that goes into it. So much work that goes into it and a lot of rehearsal and like trying things out and seeing how people respond to it. So I think by having that like seven months of struggle with raising that pre-seed, it actually prepared us really well for Dragon's Den. So during the audition, like I don't even we think that we practice. really prepped too we much just, like, ahead of the audition. audition Maybe we, and, yeah. yeah, we talked for like yeah. five minutes before we actually went in to see the producer. We're like, all right, so you'll say this, I'll say this. Cool. Okay. Like, and then we brought a few of our products. So I think just by having that background, that really helped us. And we also recognize that they're in the business of television, right? Like they want pitches that are entertaining because they're an entertainment company. Um, So we made sure that we pitched our business in a way that was like a little bit more dramatic or entertaining or that we thought that the average consumer or... um, viewer would be interested in. So overemphasizing that like uh, bootstrapped like element that we just started off with $4,000 out of Connie's kitchen and that we have all these other things going on. Um, Our audition was also 
four days ahead of a major operation that I was having at the start of um, March. And so we wove that into our pitch with them too, um, because again, it's a dramatic element that we're talking to producers, like they live for the drama. So I guess use every single <laughs> deliver like- Deliver the drama. <laughs> deliver the drama, yeah, exactly. Even in the den, like you want it to be dramatic and play up that dramatic angle as much as you can. Okay, so you on air said that you took a deal from Jim. How has that materialized or not to date? Um, so we actually ended up running the deal structure by a team of advisors and mentors that we have, and they all warned us against taking the, the royalty deal. They were concerned about the ongoing royalty for the five years afterwards, and that would limit our ability to raise institutional capital um, in future rounds, just because that can be a structure that scares off um, some larger investors. So their recommendation was to open up the seed round and see how it went. And they were like, you know, just run it for two weeks, see if it flies, raise the money that you need, and then some extra. Um, so instead of the 350, we were looking to raise um, like, you know, in the mid, uh, like 550s. And uh, yeah, and they're like, you know, just see how it goes and keep that deal on the back burner. So we ended up going ahead and raising the seed round instead of uh, accepting the deal from Jim's team. That makes a lot of sense. There's so many considerations that go into that and such interesting timing that you had. Okay, I want to talk a, bit, a little bit about the actual product itself, because I know that, you know, being natural and transparent is really key and important to you. And right now there feels like there's a little bit of greenwashing and that everyone is trying to say they are natural or this or that. Um, what makes three ships really unique and stand out in this? And what are the values or the decisions you make that drive that? Yeah, so for us, we really focus, again, on the transparency angle. And I totally agree with you, Paulina. Like, there's so much greenwashing that's going on in the industry. And that was a problem that Laura and I set out to solve um, when we were, you know, 23 and bootstrapping with that $4,000. We just couldn't afford to settle for something that just had, you know, um, an orange on the front of the package advertising itself as a vitamin C serum. <laughs> and then when you looked at the ingredients, you're like, I don't recognize anything that's in here. So for us at Three Ships, again, we focus on transparency. And the way that we see the transparency play out is in three ways. So the first is with our formulation transparency. We have a fully searchable ingredient glossary on our website where anyone can find every single ingredient we use in our products, including where they're sourced from, the scientific studies that back that ingredient, and also which products the ingredient can be found in. Second area of transparency is pricing. Um, so like we mentioned earlier, as broke students, we couldn't afford to spend, you know, $80 on a product. And so for that reason, our products will forever be under $40 US or around $55 Canadian. And with the transparency angle there, it's really about focusing our costs on what goes into the bottle. So it's not like fancy fillers or like gold flakes or pearl extracts that don't have any proven skin benefits for you. And it's also not on custom molded packaging that is really expensive, but it doesn't actually do anything for your skin. So that's why we're able to keep our pricing so affordable for our consumers. And the last element of transparency is efficacy. So we really focus on having our products provide actual results. Um, so we have over 50,000 online reviews between our website and our retail partners' websites, which is really amazing. And you can see like our average review rating is 4.8 out of five stars. We never delete reviews. Um, we never you know, Photoshop our images online. Um, and something that's really important to us um, and why product efficacy is so crucial is that I think a lot of consumers are, um, I think there's a common misconception that natural doesn't work. And for that reason, when we focus on creating products with natural ingredients, we want to make sure that every ingredient that we use has a proven purpose. So Laura works really closely with our formulators to create products with ingredients that have proven benefits. And again, that goes back to the transparency angle of like, why do we use these ingredients and why don't we use certain other ones? So all in all, um, I think with that transparency angle, the super affordable price point, um, that makes us really unique from other natural skincare brands on the market. And that really shines through so powerfully in your products and your brand. And on the note of brand, uh, in mid-2020, you underwent a rebrand, which um, some companies do, but not also very often in the first few years. But I know you had such an intentional process around it. Can you share us why? What was your brand before? What is it now? And how did that un unravel? Yeah, so we initially launched as a brand called New Body, N-I-U-B-O-D-Y. 
Uh, we rebranded for a couple reasons. Um, the main one was that the story behind New Body just didn't resonate with how our brand had evolved. So new means coconut in Hawaiian. And when we first launched those first four products, all had coconut oil in them. We had a very beachy, tropically, like casual vibe and voice to the brand as well. So there were tropical prints on all of our packaging. Uh, we would use the term babe a lot, say aloha, like it was very Hawaii focused. And then as we grew the brand and also matured as founders, we realized we actually wanted to take a more opinionated like firmer stance mm. and like carve out a real voice and space within the industry because we saw so many issues within natural skincare and that because of that we needed to mature the brand up so like the cutesy kind of look like fun look bright colors didn't really resonate with what we were wanting to accomplish anymore um the really casual tone didn't resonate we wanted to create a more mature scientific like direct tone even the names of our products um some of them were like more fun and cutesy and we wanted to mature those up as well Okay, so I want to totally switch gears and talk about something that is so interesting with the two of you. And you talked about it earlier on, which is that uh, you are very different in your personalities, very aligned in vision and values. So co-founders, it can be the thing that can make or break a business. Some mm -hmm. people say that it's almost more important than a marriage. Um, yeah. I want to know... Why does it work? Because it's obvious to me for, as an outsider that knows you a little bit, but it's obvious to me from, you know, someone who's observing you that it does work really well between you. And I don't say that it's necessarily always easy or rainbows and unicorns. I know you work hard at it and you've put in place great things between agreements, rituals, check-ins, even code words. So I want to know why you think it works well and how do you, um, what what's the work that you do to make it work well? I think what really contributed to the success of our co-founder relationship um, is trust and communication. So again, it does sound like any other relationship, relationship advice you'd receive, but for us, because we had complete opposite personality types, it took a while for us to understand each other's communication styles. So to give you an example, I'm really extroverted and also along with that pretty sensitive. So it helps in certain aspects where, say, I'm talking with a buyer and I'm able to understand their specific pain point that they're trying to solve. But at the same time, on the flip side, if I'm already really stressed out and someone, you know, messages me and like they're using more periods than normal and no emojis, and I'm going to think that they're mad at me because I'm so sensitive. And so when Laura and I first started working together, we had to realize like, oh, like, you know, Laura prefers to message with just more straightforward um, texts and, you know, Slack messages, whereas Connie is like very like smiley and emoji. And that doesn't mean like someone's more happy um, with other co-founders than other. It just means we have different communication styles. So that was something we had to learn. Um, and along with the communication um, learning, we also realized that um, we had to develop certain rules when it came to um, how we would come to decisions together. So this also ties with trust. So in this aspect, because like I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I manage the front end marketing and sales and Laura manages the back end. Um, we're two co-founders. Neither of us is like the CEO or, and you know, one of us isn't the COO. We're co-CEOs and co-founders. And that was a very intentional decision um, that we made. And for that reason, when it comes time to making important decisions, we will always run our decision making and thought process by each other. But when it comes down to the final decision maker, it does wind up being whoever manages that domain. So if it comes down to a product packaging decision, that's Laura's domain. And I can have as many suggestions as I'd like. But ultimately, if we are coming, you know, we're butting heads, um, it would be her final decision. And one thing that we've learned for communication around this is to say, are we aligned on this decision? So using that keyword for us, it's mm. are you aligned? Um, you know, it's it's like, I don't know if this is the right way to say, it, but it's like the like the safe word, if that makes sense. It's like, oh, once we hear that word, we know like, yeah, yeah the keyword like is we are aligned. We find you have to make really, really quick decisions. And if you're having to spend so much time communicating and over talking and like, like going through all the details with each other, you just won't be able to make the decisions fast enough. Connie and I also have to wear so many different hats mm -hmm. and we're juggling so many different projects at a time that sometimes what was happening before we established this we are aligned communication strategies that one person would think, oh, we came to an agreement and the other person would be like, I don't remember agreeing to that mm -hmm. because we were just talking about things in different ways and doing using different language. So that really helped. Another one that we use is FYI. So anytime that we're sending something to someone, but like we don't need feedback from them and we don't, there's no action items on their end. Like we're just telling them an update. 
um, we put FYI in front of it so they can be like, okay, noted, but know that like it's not that we're asking them to do something or to change something. Okay, I want to also talk briefly about um, mental health as entrepreneurs. And within this context too, Laura, I know you experienced a significant physical health challenge in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, Connie, you had alluded to it briefly when it came around really uh, – interesting timing when you were securing the target deal can you share that can you share how that has impacted your business the partnership and what perspectives you take away you took away from that around caring for yourself as entrepreneurs and each other yeah definitely so this year has been a very challenging year for us from a health standpoint not only because of the concerns of the pandemic that of course we all experienced in 2020 but I also went through a brain surgery operation a week before the COVID shutdowns went into effect in Toronto. So at 26, around 12 months ago from now, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Um, so it was around the size of a like a very large egg, um, right in the like middle basically of my brain on the right side. Um, and so I had to go in for a 10 hour operation to remove it. So it was an extremely scary and challenging time for I mean, pretty much everybody that is in like my life, like my Mm -hmm. parents and siblings, of course, Connie, especially, there was so much uncertainty around the business. Like what happens, for example, if I don't make it through the surgery or if I Mm -hmm. wake up and I'm like partially paralyzed or I don't have the ability to speak anymore. And these were all real risks that I was having to go through with the surgeon and sign off on and be like, yeah, I'm aware that there's a risk that I'll have a stroke or that, you know, whatever. So Um, it was an uncomfortable time in terms of having to do planning for like the worst case scenario. But that was something that I think um, inevitably that experience has brought Connie and I closer as founders. I think it's also, it's deepened our trust that we have for each other just because we've gone through something that's just so unthinkable that you'd have to go through at such a young age. Um, And it's also brought a certain depth um, to the business as well Mm -hmm. in that we have a different perspective on what we want our path or like, I guess, like impact to be um, Mm -hmm. on the world through the company. And one of those things is that we've now experienced firsthand the, I guess, downsides or the side effects of going through a major health crisis when you're very young. And I've seen a lot of people that either through physical health or mental health, they kind of get derailed and they lose hope. And you start to think of yourself as just a patient because you're in Mm -hmm. so many different appointments all the time that that becomes part of your identity. And I think that this was something that was really important for Connie and I to both remember while I was I was going through this and continue to go through it, um, is that like, you know, I'm not a patient, I'm going to be fine. Like you have to like keep focusing on the things that make you happy and work actually for me throughout this period of time has been a really important outlet. Um, mm-hmm. So my surgery, I took two months off um, of work while I was recovering. So we brought someone in to cover for me for the first like four weeks was the main time that I was off for Um, And then after those first four weeks, I slowly started to ease back into work. But at first I couldn't work for more than like an hour at a time. And I would just be exhausted and like drenched in sweat and would have to go and lie down for hours in order to recover. Um, When I first woke up after the surgery, um, I wasn't able to walk. I couldn't read calendars, couldn't understand time, like had no concept of like spatial awareness and sense. Um, They luckily removed 70% of the tumor. So now they're just doing ongoing management and monitoring of the 30% that's left. So it's always going to be, I think, a back of the mind concern, but it will also give extra color, I think, Mm -hmm. to our lives. And I appreciate it for for that aspect. Um, And then we, Connie and I have always known as well that we wanted to have some sort of charitable arm to the brand and to Three Ships, but there was never really a cause that resonated with us and felt like deeply personal and important and wouldn't just be like some sort of like marketing type angle, which I think a lot of charitable arms of companies are, unfortunately. Um, so after this experience, we were like, okay, we want to do something to help people that are impacted by brain tumors and brain cancers because that's such an important topic for us. Around this topic of hope and keeping faith alive and not just seeing yourself as a patient, Make-A-Wish Foundation was the natural fit for us. So we're really happy that starting this year, we're donating 10% of our annual profits to Make-A-Wish Foundation, mm-hmm. specifically for children and young adults who who have been diagnosed or face brain tumors and cancers. We know how scary of an illness it is, and we want to do everything that we can to bring like light and laughter and hope into the lights of these children and families. 
Oh, that's so that's so beautiful. And Connie, um, Laura, firstly, I will say I'm so glad that you are doing well. I know it was such an intense period of time. Um, and you have uh, been recovering and in recovery in such a such a positive way. Um, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's it's such a significant thing to go through. And um, it's incredible to watch you to support one another through it. So glad, Laura, that your health is doing well. And uh, what an incredible story of resilience and um, and perseverance that you've you've been able to go through. Okay, as we wrap here, my last question for you is for the for the people who are who are listening. Where can they continue to be inspired and learn from you and follow you along? Where can they find you online? And do you have any one last final kind of call to action or moment uh, of inspiration that you want to share with them? Yeah. So in terms of where you can find us, you can find all of our products as well as some amazing blog content that Connie and I produce once a month. We do some behind the scenes um, blogs and we also post regularly on social. So our website is uh, three ships beauty, like T-H-R-E-E spelt out, um, threeshipsbeauty.com. You can also find us on social at threeshipsbeauty um, on Instagram and Facebook. And then uh, Connie and I do have our own personal Instagrams too. So mine is Laura A. Burgett, so L-A-U-R-A-A-B-U-R-G-E-T. And Connie's is at it's I-T-S-C-O-N-N-I-E, low, L-O. So it's Connie Low. And then in terms of a last piece of advice or wisdom, I would say just get started. Like I can totally understand the analysis paralysis uh, mindset and the fear behind starting something. But realistically, what this process has taught us and the fact that we bootstrapped from nothing to $1.5 million in sales um, is that the best way to learn is just by doing and that you're never going to have all of the answers or even know what questions to ask at the beginning. And the best way to grow is by doing the work, mm-hmm. asking customers about what they want, iterating and changing as quickly as you can. Um, and uh, don't glorify other founders and businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone started somewhere. Um, you'll never, things are not as glamorous behind the scenes ever as what they look. It's like very Wizard of Oz, um, <laughs> where you peek behind the curtain and you're like, oh, it's just a small man. It's not this like big God. So, um, it's, it's just two yeah. small women. It's just two small women. <laughs> like, but people will literally think that we're a team of 50, like we've been told before. So, um, you'd be surprised how scrappy a lot of your like favorite founders are and how um, unsophisticated many businesses are that would surprise you. So I'd say just get started. Mm -hmm. And for me, I would recommend, you know, focus on staying in your lane. I think for me personally, I get a lot of inspiration by looking at what other people are doing, what other brands are doing, what other founders are doing, and also getting a lot of um, input from my friends and family. Like I just love hearing people's opinions. And I think in a way that was detrimental in the beginning days because it's like, whoa, there's so many people's opinions and everyone wants to help. And also there's so many brands to look at. So I think my key takeaway is to focus on your lane. You know, remember the root problem you're trying to solve. For Laura and me, it was always making natural skincare affordable and accessible for everyone. And for that reason, throughout the past three and a half, four years, we've really focused just on that mission. And anytime that someone has said, like, but what about like men's skincare? And what about hair care and body care and makeup? We're like, yes, eventually. But we want to become like the go to natural skincare company first, really put our stamp there and then expand outwards. So my main takeaway is really focus on your lane. Remember the problem you're trying to solve. And then eventually, once you get to that point, you can expand out. Amazing. I love that so much. Thank you so much, Connie and Laura. Congratulations on everything that you've built with Three Ships so far, the awesome impact you've had, the growth you've had. And thank you for taking the time with us today. Thanks so much, Thank you for having us. So nice chatting. We are now going to take a quick pause before we hear from our next guest. The go-to for entrepreneurs in the know is the outcome of a collaboration between the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs and the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Let's take a moment to hear about our generous supporter. SWE is so pleased to have teamed up with the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Did you know that they have an advisory board consisting of Scotiabank executives who share their expertise during group mentoring sessions? They cover a variety of subjects for women entrepreneurs, such as this one. Fundraising. To join the program, go to scotiabankwomeninitiative.com slash join now. I'm so excited to be diving into our next conversation. Becoming a pilot was transformational, truly giving this Métis woman wings. 
Tira is the first Indigenous woman to launch an airline in Canada. Let me say that again. She is the first Indigenous woman to launch an airline in Canada called Esquayo Air. Esquayo Air is the bridge between traditional air service and the sustainable technology of the future. She believes that together in this innovative space, we will rematriate, reimagine, and rebuild our air transportation systems, centering equity, resilience, and sustainability. Tira founded the nonprofit Indigenous Lift Collective and launched Give Them Wings, Indigenous Youth Taking Flight, and the Lift Circle, collectively co-creating the conditions for Indigenous women entrepreneurs to thrive. Tara holds a Master's of Arts in Leadership degree from Royal Roads University, and she is a certified executive coach. The journey of learning now takes her back to Royal Roads as associate faculty and to Fielding University, where she is studying in the Human Development PhD program. Tara has been named WXN's Canada's Most Powerful Women Top 100, Top 25 Women of Influence, YWCA Women of Distinction, and, okay, get this, I want you to really, really get this because this is one of the coolest things, one of 18 real world heroes in the DC Comics Wonder Woman anthology that comes out in 2021. So amazing. And we are speaking with Tiara this morning where she has already been up in the air and flown over as of 3 a.m. So thank you, Tiara, for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay, so I want to begin with a little bit of context setting. I want to ask you, when you were starting, what did it look like? How was it when you started, how it started, and then take us to how it's going? Oh, my goodness. Okay, when does it start, right? <laughs> That's the question. Um so I think I'll I'll take us back to um, uh, when I was around 30 years old and I was a single mom with with two kids and um, just kind of wondering what 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 was in store for me and feeling like there was there was more in this world for me and uh, so you know I did uh, what any uh, of us do uh, sit down on the in the self-help section of the uh, of the bookstore, and say, okay, <laughs> how do I how do I get this all sorted out? Anyways, I put what um, color is I your was... parachute? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. What color is your parachute? And um, right after that is what's on your bucket list. And so I put on my bucket list uh, that I wanted to go to Africa and I wanted to see the zebras and the giraffes. And um, so that began um, a a real journey for me and because for me it seemed like that was an impossible thing to I had never done any traveling I was a single mom with two kids and um, I had no post-secondary education but I all of a sudden as soon as I wrote on the top of that bucket list that that I needed to go to Africa I don't know it 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 transformed something so I saved and I saved and I saved and uh, packed one of those big yellow backpacks for mountain equipment co-op and uh, off I go I was ready my departure date was set for uh, October 22nd and that was the October that followed 9-11 so uh, uh, that's exactly it uh, so you can imagine the state of the world at that time and and what seemed like an impossible thing going to Africa then also seemed still impossible, even though I I had bought my flight, I had packed my bag. A little bit later on the trip, uh, I had a tour. Um, we went flying over the Okavanga Delta in Botswana, and the pilot was banking the aircraft and showing us the animals and telling us stories of the land. And I was like, oh my gosh, that guy has the coolest job I've ever seen. And uh, that's, I want to fly an airplane. So I got down from that flight and I was like, I was like, let's review, sweetie, honey. <laughs> you're 30 years old. You're a single mom with two kids. You have no money. You have no education. Um, and something like that is just not possible for something, somebody like you. And then two weeks later, I went skydiving, second time in a small plane. 
And I knew in that moment when we were taxiing out uh, that uh, I would do whatever it took to make it possible. And uh, told myself in that moment that uh, I will, I, I don't know what it takes, but I'll fly an airplane. And I tell you all of that part of the where does it even begin story because it's all, it's all part of where I am here because it's those little it's those little bits of believing in something that seems impossible and then just believing that you can actually make it possible. So then I say getting my wings gave me wings for everything else in my life because then when I actually got my pilot's license, I was just like, are you kidding me? A, how did I even do that? And here I am. And look at, I made the, that thing possible. And that is very much what has, um, you know, really been a solid foundation for who I am as an entrepreneur is then just, um, I always say, dream it, design it, do it. And, uh, when it seems impossible, then, um, you just have believed that it, that it is possible. And then, and then you make it, then you make it real. I feel it in my bones. It is in my bones. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. I was right there as you were talking, I was right there with you in that plane flying over those lands and those fields. How incredible that sense of um, expansion, which is such a sense that you get to when you're embarking in the dreaming and visioning state of the business, the expansiveness of it. Okay. So tell us, how's it going now? What is, what does today look like? Today is hard. Um, there's no question about that. You know, starting um, a business in aviation is hard to begin with. Um, starting a uh, air operation in a pandemic, aviation tourism have been hit um, amongst the hardest, if not the hardest, by uh, the pandemic, and um, in 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 an impact way. I mean, people are, um, of course, you know, not traveling. Um, etc. But in in the somewhere in the middle of all of this, you know, I didn't know if I was going to make it. I was like, I don't even know how um, how I can how I can make this work. How I can you know weather the storm. And you know, then I started to you know like really lean into my gratitude practice and um, just being grateful about everything that is and, and everything, um, you know, our, our, our families and our health and our, our homes and our, um, our relations with one another. And I don't know, there came a point where I just made a decision, um, actually not that long ago, um, a handful of months ago, where I said, no, that's not the story that we're going to have. This is the story we're going to have. The story we're going to have is, remember, that Métis woman who was brave enough to, you know, start an air operation and then a pandemic hit and she didn't know if she was going to make it or not. Um, and then she did. And she made it because it, um, because people came together, people supported one another. And, um, and then, you know, she made it and then she went on to thrive. That's the, that's the story I'm determined to have. You know, as you were speaking about community gathering and supporting too, I wonder if you can share what are the values around community that really you know to be true and came to life? I know that for you, one of the really important ways that you embed um, values into your business is around matriarchal and indigenous values. And I know um, one thing that is held so near and dear is the belief that we are not alone, but that the blood of our ancestors, the spirit and their energy reside within us and are with mm-hmm. us in, mm-hmm. in that. How do you tap into that in those moments? And how, how have you tapped into community in those times? Mm-hmm. Oh, in so many ways. I mean, I, I believe it, it takes an entire community to raise a business to its feet and have it take flight, literally. And, you know, right, right back to the very beginning when, when I was first a pilot, I mean, it took a community to be able to, you know, help me with my kids when, when I was flying, you know, you're up north somewhere, you expect to be home and, you know, suddenly you're, you're, (laughs) you're, you know, calling someone to say, oh my gosh, can you, 
can you pick up my kids from daycare? My kids had the opposite. I don't know if I should say this out loud. I'm going to anyways. My kids had the opposite instruction of every other kid. Their instruction was, <laughs> if a stranger comes to pick you up from daycare, it's okay. Go with them. Because, <laughs> um, because you know, I remember, you know, a pilot friend of mine, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm stuck. I'm in Terrace. Like, I need someone to go. And, you know, and of course, I would call and, and let them know. But um, so it, it, it does take a, a whole community and, and it, one of the really incredible things to witness in this global pandemic is the ways in which people are coming together in, in community in really rich and, and, and beautiful ways. So I'm studying the concept of warriorship in, mm-hmm. um, my PhD program. I'm in the human development, um, program at Fielding University. And um, so I'm studying the concept of warriorship. And what I'm curious about is how, how change makers are remembering, reclaiming, practicing, and integrating warriorship. Mm-hmm. And I define warriorship as standing fiercely with deep love for what matters. I love the integration of the deep love there and for what matters. Warriorship and interestingly, a lot of business terms can feel so um, aggressive and about fighting. Like I think of the terms and phrases like killing it, slaying it, et cetera, et cetera. And the spirit of this feels equally strong and powerful with that value and that energy of love, which is very different. And you and I share the belief that entrepreneurship is such a powerful way. It's one way and it's such a powerful way that we change communities, that we change systems, that we change the way we interact with one another. Um, Mm. I love the spirit of that definition that you bring forward in that regard. Mm. Thank you. And when I think about, you know, standing fiercely with deep love for what matters, right? It's like the willingness to, to be fierce when we need to, but we have to, we have to bring our good hearts Mm -hmm. to, to that. And we, um, we have to be clear about the things that matter. Now on the note of changing systems and cultures, you shared with me a new vision that you are creating and bringing to life. So I know now, thanks to you, that when we look at the aviation world and the systems behind it, a specific interesting point is that 2.8% of aircraft maintenance engineers are women identifying. And you are on a mission (laughs) to change that and create a new aircraft maintenance organization because, you know, an airline isn't enough. There's more systemic change to be led and created. Can you tell us more about your vision here and um, why this is so important and what impact you think it will have? Yeah, that's how we're going to shake things up in 2021 is we're going to start our own um, aircraft maintenance organization that will be woman-led. And we have a uh, three, which is miraculous, um, women identifying uh, aircraft maintenance engineers that are going to join our team. And it, it doesn't mean that we're only going to have women as part of our team. Of course not. But what it means is that we want to, um, well, and you, you said it in, in the introduction there, you know, reimagine, rematriate, and rebuild um, aviation and aerospace uh, because it will need to be rebuilt. So how are we going to do that? The same way we did it before? Or how about we do it a little bit different? So, you know, one of the ways that I can contribute to that is... Um, is creating spaces of belonging for everyone. And that's why I specifically mentioned it's, it's, I want to create spaces where everyone feels like they belong, where everyone feels like they can show up as their whole, incredible, quirky, wonderful self at, at work and, and belong. So we aim to um, launch the, um, the aircraft maintenance uh, organization, AMO it's called, on March 8th, 2021. And it's a little bit of an ambitious uh, uh, goal, 
but uh, let's just make it happen. Envision it, dream it, dream it, <laughs> design, design it, it do and it. do it. <laughs> dream it, design it, and do it. I'm so there for that vision. So excited for your launch of this. <laughs> I think it's going to be so powerful and well. Uh, we know that seeing new models, new examples inspires others to consider how they can integrate, how they can engage. So I bet that 2.8% with your leadership is going to become 28% in no time. In no That's time. It. I see it. Dream I it, design it. it, do it. Okay, I want to switch gears ever so slightly to talk about another business and impact you have made uh, around Raven Institute. So firstly, could you share us a little bit more about what Raven does, its vision and impact? And then I also really want to talk about the recent announcement of transitioning the Raven Institute to an incredible um, fellow leader and uh, who also happens to be your daughter, Kiana. It's something that I know you've brought so much deep thought and intention into and goes beyond the quote-unquote succession planning and is a really powerful model of that holding space for power and leadership for one another. So tell us a bit more about it and that process. Oh, I would love to. So the idea for the Raven Institute was born when um, when I started at Royal Roads University in the Master of Arts in Leadership program. And that's where the idea was born. It grew from there. You know, this idea around, um, you know, connecting you know, hearts, minds and hands across the nation. How do we, you know, how do we change systems? And how do we how do we look at leadership through a a more relational lens. I know we're just all just humans, so let's create human systems and disrupt all the non-human systems that are existing. And um, so that's the Raven Institute. And so uh, Kiana uh, came to work uh, on our team and then has just continued to... um, grow her role and to be part of, um, you know, this small team working together, you know, together we launched um, Raven Speak, which is an initiative of the Raven Institute, which I'm so, I'm so excited about. And that was, sometimes I make a decision, I'm like, okay, no more waiting, it has to happen now. And, um, you know, there was, you know, sometimes it brews around for a long time. And, then, you know, maybe it moves off brew and moves ahead a little bit. But Raven Speak is this, you know, was this vision that, you know, I want to, like, people would ask me to come and speak at events, me and, 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 and many others. But they're like, oh, you're the only Indigenous person I know, or mm-hmm. I don't know any Indigenous people. And I'm like, this is, this is, no, this is unacceptable. And I, I wanted to see Indigenous peoples on every panel, on at every conference, not um, only being invited to talk about reconciliation. Reconciliation is a very important topic, but Indigenous peoples have wisdom on every single thing we're talking about. And so, so we created together, Kian and I created um, Raven Speak, uh, where Indigenous changemakers are visible, masterful, amplified, and connected. That's our vision for, for the program. I don't know that I hear a lot of people talk about this way when they talk about leadership transitions, of how it comes together and um, the the intention behind it, but also this sense of flow that I hear when you say it. It really feels like the energy flowed, it was there, and the time and the other pieces. Did you two have any, um, like I'm thinking of the logistics of all these things, which can sometimes be (laughs) the hang-up parts, right? Like, uh, did you have to dive into challenging conversations around it or how did the transition components come around in so many ways you were almost like a tight co-founder partnership Mm -hmm. or a co-creative partnership and when one person steps away 
it, it can leave either a hole or a gap or can bring emotions to surface to the surface. How how did all that map out for you or perhaps what helped in the smoothness and the flow of it? Hmm. Yes. So I guess, first of all, I don't see very much co-founding and co-creating, but because I was really the, the founder of it, then it, it almost, it always seemed to kind of default to, to um, me as the, you know, as the leader, I'm making finger quotes with my fingers. You can't see those, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the, the leader, uh, and what I, and then I just realized that I was actually um, in the way. I was just, mm. um, I just needed to be a little less in the way. So we're still mm. very much in it together and we're still mm. co-creating. Um, I have a great new title called Lead uh, 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 Disruption and Design. Ah. Um, so that's, yes. So that's I hear that role. and I go, yes, that is you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so, I mean, very much it, it came together quite quickly. I realized um, at, um, at the convocation that, you know, this is um, obviously what needs to happen. And then um, we had a, a conversation, um, I don't know, for about an hour or so. And then uh, we brainstormed my new title. And then, um, and then we made an announcement. And now she's very much um, the lead executive of the Raven Institute. And I am in support of her leadership as the lead disruption and design. That is beautiful, beautiful, and speaks to, I think, how powerfully you've been creating and integrating those values from the get-go, because that has been kind of behind the scenes of all the decisions I'm sure you've made along the way for that to come together so powerfully. It's so incredible to hear you say it that way. I think it speaks volumes to your leadership, to your knowing of where your strengths are, where her strengths are, and together co-creating, as you say, the environment where each of you can thrive and where collectively the organization can thrive in further support of women. It's quite, quite remarkable and quite incredible. It's so inspiring. Okay, I want to ask you one last question, Tara, as we wrap up, which is what do you feel is the most important decision that you've made? The most important decision that I've made is the decision to be myself unapologetically. Still is interesting. So emotion came when I when I shared that because I'm still learning. I'm still learning to uh, be myself apolog- unapologetically um, and bring my whole self and be, and be just me. Well, I, for one, am so grateful that you are you, not just you, because it's not just you, it is you <laughs> in fullness and wholeness. And uh, you truly are making such a difference for all of us with your leadership in the way you co-create systems for Indigenous women to thrive, women to thrive, but also for our communities to be better for it. The role modeling you do um, has such incredible ripple effects of impact. Thank you. I know it is hard work and no no less harder thanks to a pandemic that has significantly impacted your industry where you work. And uh, I will just express my gratitude and admiration for what you do. Tara, as we wrap up, do you have an ask that you would like to share with our audience? Is there any way that they can be uh, champions of your work, any way that uh, they can help or contribute or be along this journey with you? What's the best way to do that? Oh, my goodness. I have a whole list. That's amazing. Thank you. So uh, check us out at escuayo.ca and uh, check us out on the social media. We just released a a, like one minute video about our AMO. It's super cool. And I'd love for everybody to uh, to have a watch of it so you can see what we have in store. And I would um, encourage everybody when you're ready and when it's safe to travel again to think about uh, traveling with uh, Escuayo Air. And if you are um, in government at any level, 
or in the corporate sector, I, um, uh, I would love to help you with your procurement objectives and uh, have you uh, uh, come and fly with Escuela Air. Amazing. Incredible. Noting, noting, noting. And I know too that sometimes on social media, you will do a post saying, hey, we're flying to this community. We're accepting donations of X, Y, Z. So folks, if you, once you, once you follow Tierra and Espeo Air online, keep your eyes out for those. It's such a powerful way to activate and be, be part of this amazing adventure. Absolutely. Thank you so much again, Tiara. Such a delight talking to you today. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much, Connie, Laura, and Tiara for the conversation. Our mission at the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs is to amplify the voices of Canadian women entrepreneurs across all platforms. Typically, this time would be used as an ad or sponsor spot but we've decided to dedicate the next 60 seconds to a woman-owned business in Canada to share their vision. Let's have a listen. Three Shifts is an all-natural vegan skincare company whose mission is to make clean beauty accessible for all women. Our products are 100% plant-derived, certified cruelty-free and vegan, and best of all, forever under $40 US, which is super affordable. Today, we're giving listeners 20% off their first order on 3shipsbeauty.com with promo code FWE20. Just head to 3shipsbeauty.com, that's T-H-R-E-E-S-H-I-P-S, beauty.com, and use promo code FWE20 for 20% off your first order. We also have an amazing 30-day free return policy, including covering the cost of the return shipping, so you can feel confident that you'll love your natural skincare products. Thank you so much for supporting our Canadian natural skincare brand. Being an entrepreneur is life-changing, often deeply impactful and energizing, and it can also be overwhelming, lonely, and challenging. Whether you're thinking about starting your own business now, or you've been at it for years, we are here for you. We offer outcome and impact-focused programs, education designed specifically for entrepreneurs, and a deeply supportive community. Our entrepreneurs say that the highlight of their time with us is not only the tangible results they experience within themselves and their business, but also the incredible sense of community with other women who share similar goals, values, and visions. Visit us at fwe.ca slash discover to join us and to learn more about how to be part of the community of education, mentorship, and support. Thank you for spending time with us and listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Our goal is to leave no woman behind. Explore more about this episode and learn how to get plugged into our community by visiting fwe.ca slash discover and on our socials at FWE Canada. Thank you again to the Scotiabank Women Initiative and remember to visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com slash join now to find out how to join. Huge thanks also to the Women's Enterprise Organizations of Canada for your support. And last, but certainly not least, thank you to our incredible production team, Self-Hired Media. This podcast is also available in French, thanks to our incredible translation team at Hummingbird Translations. See you next time.